Welcome to the podcast hosted by timecam.com on how to stay on top of your work. In today's episode, we are talking about so many interesting things. How the concept of hard work is associated with doing the work we don't like. About setting goals and what goals actually are. Why the journey matters more than the goal. And what's up with making plans. And if you want to escape the unproductive corporate world and start your own business, where the level of productivity will be relevant to how much money you make, Steve Robbins has an advice for you. Steve is a serial entrepreneur, top iTunes podcaster, and productivity expert. But there is much more to his story than that, so make sure to listen to this episode. Steve, welcome to Stay on Top of Your Work podcast, and thank you so much for joining me here today. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. I think everybody has an interesting story. So would you like to share your career story with us? Oh, my career story <laughs> is is highly non-standard and strange. I That's started great. my life as a software engineer and figured out fairly early in my career that I had no people skills. So I uh, I went to MIT undergrad and got a degree in computer science and discovered that I had no people people skills. So a few years into my career, I switched over to corporate training, not because I had any particular interest in training, although these days I do, but I switched over precisely to force myself to learn how to deal with people. So I became a trainer for a company that did artificial intelligence workstations and sold them to the military. And me as a small, skinny, very young looking 22 year old got to teach things to army colonels and things and figure out how to, you know, how to basically get credibility with them, how to non-verbally interact, etc. I then went from there to Harvard Business School, became interested in business and in particular in the question of how come the best product often doesn't win. And in fact, the products that often win in the marketplace are mediocre at best. And that led me to learn about corporate strategy and entrepreneurship. Um, I had co-founded a company with some friends of mine as an undergrad, and it became a company that did part of the part of the backbone of the internet for PCs uh, once upon a time long ago. Then after Harvard Business School, I joined Intuit, the people who make financial software called Quicken and QuickBooks. Uh, at the time, Intuit was a very small company. It was about 100 people. And from there, I did a variety of different things. After Intuit, I went back to Harvard Business School at their request and helped them redesign the MBA program. From there, I jumped to being the chief operating officer of a startup. From there, I went off on my own with a couple of friends and spent a couple of years doing consulting in transfer of best practices. So if you have two companies, or actually, we would work with a large company that might have multiple plants. And if one plant was performing very well and another plant wasn't, what are the best practices that the plant was that was performing well was doing that the other plant wasn't, and how do we transfer them? From there... I joined another startup, a, a an internet strategy consulting firm startup. This was back during the first internet bubble. Uh, rode that for a bit and then split off from that to become an executive coach. It, it One of the things that was becoming obvious is at this point I had some experience and I had some knowledge and I had grand things to say. <laughs> and uh, as an executive coach, I could help people who did not have that experience and that knowledge. This, this actually continues the theme of teaching from 
you know, all the way from that very first job change that I didn't do for that reason. But it turns out I love teaching and I love helping people get better at things and was an executive coach for many years. And I would jump in and out of different companies and different projects. I worked with a man named Keith Ferrazzi, who was the author of the book, Never Eat Alone. I was briefly the president of his training and development company. I worked for Babson College, which at the time, it may still be, was the number one entrepreneurship school in the world. And I helped them with their process to, uh, to develop a new strategy for the school. From that, I learned about a bunch of entrepreneurial research on some of the ways to optimize the business thinking around how you start a new venture. And some friends of mine and I decided to actually test that by starting a business. And we started a job hunting business. It was a job hunting social media business. I, to this day, I think the idea is a great idea. The problems we ran into, however, were marketing problems, very difficult to reach people who are out of a job and even more difficult to get them to pay for a service, even if the service is to help them find a job. And, uh, uh, and then from, since then, I have done a variety of things, usually around the coaching realm. Um, and then about a year ago, I invented something called Get It Done Groups, which are they are s- group accountability and support for people who have control over their own time and need to stay focused and on task and make really rapid movement with things. So there are groups for people who... Like, you know, oh, I've always wanted to write a book or, you know, I started developing this business plan. I want to finish that business plan or whatever. And we do 12-week sprints of really hyper-focused productivity. And these work awesomely and amazingly. And so that that's the entire arc. And you may be the first person I've ever actually said all of it to. I usually wow. just say, oh, you know, I used to be a programmer and now I do productivity stuff. But there was that's, a lot of Yeah, that's a long way for you to come from. Uh, from from a beginner to you know such a big intra- entrepreneur, that's amazing. It, well, I did start early. I, I will confess, I moved away from home when I was fourteen and oh. and supported myself since then. So I have a few years on most other people, and also I'm older than I look. But don't tell anyone. Okay, well, it will be a secret. <laughs> so you are teaching people how to be productive, right? Yep. And that's very important in today's world. But is productivity a good thing? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the real question. Um, I teach people to be productive. And what's funny is I don't necessarily believe that productivity is a good thing. Um, From a societal point of view, productivity is a good thing, right? We we as a society have a certain amount of resources. We want to provide a certain standard of living, etc. The economy that we have created is unbelievably wasteful. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. People look and they say, oh, but you know, XYZ Corporation is so efficient. I'm like, yes, but in order for XYZ Corporation to become so efficient, you had to have 100 other corporations which which competed against them. And those corporations are now all out of business. However, they used an incredible amount of resources <laughs> in, in, in that competitive fight. So from a societal point of view, I think productivity is important. Um, and, you know, we certainly haven't found any better way to to spur technological development than this kind of competitive system that we have now. So, you know, I, it's, it's not that I have any better idea. Um, but from a, personal, from a personal point of view, productivity may or may not be useful. If you work for someone else and you figure out a way to get your job done in half the time, than it would normally take you. And so you put your feet up on your desk and you get out a graphic novel and you are sitting there reading about, you know, super... I don't know any graphic novels off the top of my head, but whatever whatever you read about in graphic novels, there you are reading about it. And your boss walks by 
and your boss sees you kicking back at your desk with your feet on the desk, they're not going to think, oh, look at that person, they're so productive. What they're going to think is, wow, they're really lazy. Or they're going to think, we obviously didn't give them enough work. So we will give them more work without giving them more pay because we obviously didn't give them enough work in the first place. Um, So in fact, at a personal level, if you work for someone else, being more productive, you you want to be just productive enough to keep your job and or get whatever advancement you want, but you don't want to be much more productive than that because all that will do is get you more work and generally no promotion and no additional money because it will not be perceived as you being very productive. What it will be perceived as is you wasting a bunch of time and them not having given you enough work for your current pay grade, um, which is a bizarre paradox. You you need to make sure you have a, a boss who judges you based on your output, not based on your hours. And I discovered this at my very first job when it turned out I, I was one of those computer, computer programmers, um, are not all created equal. And there is a particular category of programmer that is about a hundred times more productive than other programmers measured as lines of debugged, well-written code, you know, per week or whatever. I'm one of those. And, um, and this is one of the reasons I left the industry because what I discovered was I could be a hundred times more productive than other people. And it didn't matter because at most I was paid five or 10% more than them. <laughs> and, and I was like, this, this is, I'm not interested in this deal. This is a crappy deal, <laughs> you know? And I, I enjoyed coding, but you know, only if I could guarantee that I would, that I would have an incredible amount of fun doing the particular things I was working on or get incredible compensation, you know, or whatever. But what I found was my propensity to be extremely productive simply resulted in me being given more work for roughly the same pay as everyone else. And, and I was like, this is crazy. Why would I want to do this? Uh, now, you know, maybe that's not the case for most people. Maybe most people are not that productive. But if you're going to be productive, think about that. Now, if you're self-employed, being more productive potentially does translate directly into dollars for you. So in that case, productivity is great with the provision that you get productive at things that matter because there's two different concepts. There's efficiency and effectiveness. And what I have found is that a lot of people in the productivity world and in the self-help improvement world and stuff, they really, really, really want to get efficient. I have a podcast, the Get It Done Guys, Quick and Dirty Tips to Work Less and Do More. Episode 540 is going up this week. Um, And the podcast is all tips. It's all, here's a thing to do to become more efficient. And that's what people want. The problem is, and you know, that's the podcast, so that's what I'm continuing to do. But the real key is not being more efficient. The real key is being more effective. And effectiveness is about doing the right thing. If you are efficient at doing the wrong thing, you will get to where you don't want to go faster. And I'm like, that's, 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 that's actively can be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So what you want to do, what you want to do first is make sure that you're doing the right things, the right tasks, and then make sure that you're doing those tasks as efficiently as possible. Uh, So that's a very long answer to the question, of, of is <laughs> productivity fine. a good thing? And the answer is yes, but not all productivity. Productivity has to be pointed in the right direction. And, and if it's pointed in the right direction, and if you're the one who can reap the benefits or at least part of the benefits from it, then it's a good thing. But otherwise, you know, no, don't, don't go for it. Yeah, so productivity is very often, um, you know, related to if hard work. What do you think about hard, hard work? You know... I, I watch these YouTube videos of people saying, if you want to succeed, you have to work so hard that your hair falls out. <laughs> and I look at this and I go, that's not true. 
Um, it, now, it, it's true in sports, maybe, because sports is literally physically about hard physical work, and the harder you work, the more you win. But in in knowledge work, and in a lot of jobs, hard work is is again. I mean, first of all, it has the same effectiveness versus efficiency problem. Is that if you're doing hard work, you want to do hard work and make sure it's the hard work that will make the difference in moving your business forward or whatever your thing is, right? Like I'm personally, I'm a perfectionist. This is horrible because I will spend 30% of my time making some aspect of the business perfect, but it doesn't matter if that's not the aspect that's holding the business back. So, you know, maybe I have the best looking handouts any human being has ever created in the history of the human race. And it doesn't matter because I don't have any people buying the product to give the handouts to. Whereas I could have crappy handouts, and if I put all of my time on sales and marketing, then I would have all these people, and they would look at my crappy handouts and be paying me money. <laughs> and, and you know what? That's fine. Then I would have money, and I could hire a designer to make the handouts look perfect if I even decided it was necessary. So, so, um, so when it comes to hard work, I am much more in favor of working smart. And working smart means finding, making sure that what you're working on is the right thing. So it means a lot more time up front to make sure that the thing you're doing is the thing that needs to be done uh, and understanding the requirements of that work. And then figuring out any way you possibly can to reduce the amount of time, effort, and resources that it takes. And this is the efficiency thing. So, so hard work, I, I used to ask audiences when I do public speaking, I say, could define hard work. Like when you say work hard and you'll get ahead or when you tell a child, you know, oh, you just need to work hard. What do you mean by hard work? And, and about 80% about of the people, the definition of hard work, the definition is work I don't want to do, work that takes too many hours, and work that does not play to my strength. So when you say, you know, you just need to work hard, what you're saying to somebody based upon that definition is you just need to do more stuff you're bad at, don't enjoy and do it for more hours. Yeah. And I'm like, that's insane advice. Yeah. Number one, it's insane advice for living your life just in the first place. But number two, uh, the, the research that's been done on actual productivity results, creativity, all of it says that if you play to your strengths and do it with sufficient rest time, so you're not doing it 80 hours a week, um, you'll be way, way, way happier. <laughs> yeah. oh, sorry, yeah, sorry. You'll be way happier. The research shows you'll also be way more productive. That that you will you will in, in total get more done. So so you know when people say you know oh you just need to work hard. I look at them and I'm like I'm like you mean I need to do stuff I don't like for longer? No, I want to do stuff I do like that plays to my strengths. And at least in America, and I know we're in different countries, but in America, uh, especially in the last several years, I've noticed this weird thing where people seem to people seem to think that if someone enjoys their job, that means that person shouldn't get paid as much. You know, oh, oh you know, they, they don't get paid that much, but they, but they have one of those jobs that you love. And I think that's an insane attitude. Like, yeah. like what? We, 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 we want to say that we should penalize people financially for enjoying their jobs seriously. Number one, that's bad for the businesses because, as I just said, the research shows that if people enjoy their jobs, they'll do better. And number two, uh, okay, so let's go through all of the investment banks and management consulting firms and C-suites. Let's ask all of the CEOs of the Fortune 500, do you enjoy your job? And any that say yes, we take their salary away. That's not a and good I'm willing, idea. <laughs> right. Well, that's the thing. Like the people who say this, they, they don't think this all the way through. 
Yeah. You know, like, like this clearly is, is absurd. If someone enjoys their job and if their job is good for the, and if their job is like, you know, working and, and it's producing value, reward them more for goodness sake, because then they'll do more. Maybe. I mean, there's also this research that says if you pay people too much for doing something, it reduces their creativity. It's very complicated. Money ruins everything, unfortunately, except uh, Lamborghinis. (laughs) Money, money, money doesn't ruin Lamborghinis. It it buys more of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. So what I'm thinking about is um, if let's say I work in a corporation and I'm doing a lot of hard work, but I want to start my own business and be an entrepreneur. How to do that? (laughs) <laughs> you know, like I, I say, like, I want to do that, but, you know, I have so many things to do. I have, I, I'm working so hard, so I don't have time to be, to start my own business. People do all these excuses. How to overcome right. that? Because I think it's possible. Well, okay. So first of all, if people are, if, if people are using excuses, um, uh, you know, I don't know, at some point you, you, people just have to decide to do it. Right. I mean, there's, so there's the psychological piece, which is you at some point decide, okay, I'm going to just sit down and and make a go of it. But then the question is, how do you practically speaking, make a go of it? And again, I'm speaking from, excuse me, I'm speaking from an American perspective. I don't know what the work situation, what the economy is like in other Mm -hmm. countries, but from my perspective. um, uh, So first of all, the, a lot of people start ideas for a business by, uh, by, you know, building a website or by getting business cards or, you know, whatever. And, and I also want to draw a quick distinction. There's multiple kinds of businesses. I would call small business. If someone said, I want to start a laundromat, I would call that a small business. You're not inventing something new. This is a well-understood business. You're probably not going to be trying to make it onto the Inc. 500. You know, it's, it's a, it's a different kind of business than if you say, wow, I've invented this new technology that lets me, uh, you know, build drones that can hover over a city street and figure out what the trending fashions are and then, you know, come back and produce the fashion that's going to sell the most next season, right? That's never been done before. We don't know if it's going to be done before. That's a high risk, a high risk venture that you're probably going to go out and raise money for, et cetera. And those are two different cases. Um, uh, but so in the first case where you want to start a small business for that, I think there's reasonable infrastructure, uh, you know, um, go out, get a small business loan. If you're in a country that gives those talk to people that have started that kind of business, find out what it takes to succeed in it. Because, you know, a lot of times, again, these are tried and true businesses. You can find out most of that information, find out how much money it takes to start it, how much income you can expect, what the expenses are, and you can just kind of go do it. Um, now, at some point, you still have to make the decision to do it and to say, I'm going to quit my day job and go do this other job. Um, let's use something like a retail business or a laundromat as an example. You can't hold a full-time job and also do one of those just because you have to be present at the at the new business during the during work hours. Um, but you know, for something like I'm going to make some widget in my living room and then sell that over the internet and package it up. For those, you could, for some period of time, try to run that from your living room while carrying on a full-time job. It helps if you can find a way to work remotely. If your employer is willing to help you to make this transition, maybe you can work remotely and then start your home business there. You might be able to hire someone, either a family member or you know, a neighborhood kid or someone who's, who's inexpensive enough that you could pay them to handle the packaging, the widgets up and sending them out from your living room once a day. 
or something like that until the volume gets to be big enough that that you can quit your full-time job. If you're talking about the other type of business, the type of business where it hasn't been done before, you're really put, breaking new ground, you can't go and find a model for it, you, you couldn't easily get a small business loan necessarily for your, your new fashion drones because the Small Business Administration would just look at you and go, excuse me, <laughs> like, <laughs> why don't you open a laundromat instead? Those we understand. Uh, mm-hmm. For something like that, I think the, the, the key there is to start off find, figuring out is there even a market for this? A lot of people start with a product or service, but developing a product or service before you have proven the market. And again, this is, this is my, this is, I'm very sensitive about this because this is my personal blind spot. I come up with all these product ideas and I go and I build something and then discover that I gave no thought at all as to whether anyone, anyone other than me wants this or will pay for it uh, and or how to get them to pay for it. So I'll use the get it done groups as an example, because these are what I'm working on right now. Mm-hmm. So with get it done groups, I keep being tempted to do all of these things like, wow, I'm going to like add this, the, these, uh, I'm going to add all the structure to it so that people can use it for this type of project and that type of project. And then I'm going to team up with an online education company so that we can give people drop in educational modules about whatever the kind of thing is they're working on. So if they're an author trying to finish a book, we can give them a course on how to write books. No, 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 no sell them, get some people into the program, and then find out what they need and how the current program falls short, which of course it doesn't. It's perfect as it is. So it's only upwards from here. Um, And then I can develop, develop a program, which instead of being everything that I think is interesting, it will be the things that the market, that the people who actually show up and actually want to pay actually need. And, um, you know, if you if you develop a pen, you say, I'm going to create a new pen. And you have this, this and for those of you who are listening, I'm holding up a pen and shaking it very authoritatively. Uh, let's say you want to develop a pen. Instead of developing 10 different colors of a pen and then going out and trying to sell them, you develop a pen, you take it out, you try to sell it to 10 people. And eight of the people say, wow, that's a really nice pen. Unfortunately, the ink is fluorescent orange, and I really need a pen whose ink is uh, mahogany. And so you go back and go, great, I can save myself all the effort of developing that fluorescent orange pen. And I have eight people who want mahogany and I can instead come back with a mahogany pen. Um, now, there is an actual body of research called Effectuation. And it comes from a woman named Sarah Sarasvathy, a professor at the Darden School of Business. At, um, uh, and she has, she has documented all of this. It's similar to what people talk about with lean startup methodology, but it's more lean startup applied to business as opposed to lean, lean product applied to methodology, applied to product development. Um, but one of the keys is you basically allow your market and the other shareholders and the other stakeholders in it. So maybe your manufacturer, um, your product designer, whoever is involved in creating this product, you let them all influence what the product turns out to be. However, the test is you only let them influence it if they fork over some sort of money or commitment. So when you take your fluorescent orange pen out and you interview 10 people and eight of them say, we'd really like mahogany, what you say to them is, great, would you like to put down a pre-order right now, and I'll give it to you for you know, 75% or, or for 25% off, put down a pre-order for the very first batch of mahogany pens. And if you say that and they say, uh, well... <laughs> I, I don't actually want a mahogany pen that much, then you don't change the color to mahogany because that doesn't really constitute, or maybe you, you, know, you, know, you do a test where you ask, ask people, but you're looking for what are people really willing to put money over for? 
And once you have those ideas, that's where you start putting your time and effort and building uh, and building your business. Now, on the practical level, since the, we're ostensibly talking about productivity and time management, <laughs> if you have a full-time job, what that means is that, that whatever work you do on your business outside of your full-time job, start with the product design integrated with sales and marketing because that's going to be your highest leverage piece. Because if you can't sell it, you're never going to get, you're, you're, you're not going to need to get to any of the next steps. So start with the minimum amount that you need to be able to test the sales proposition, hopefully even just doing it with the, you know, with ideas and, and, and on the, uh, uh, you know, on the, at the level of here's a mock-up or here's a conceptual idea. If you can, if you can get high enough quality feedback that way, uh, rather than actually, you know, manufacturing something and producing something in China and having it come over and then taking it around and people say, no, we don't want that. Mm -hmm. You know, you've just invested an awful lot to just to get information. You know, what comes to my mind is that when you were, you were talking about all, all these things, which are very interesting and we don't have that much time to talk about them, unfortunately, uh, is what I think about is setting goals. Uh, because when you, let's say you start a business and you're still working in, in a company full time, how to set goals and how to achieve them? It's so difficult when you have so many things sure. to do. <laughs> okay. Well, so there's, there's, there's two, there's actually two hidden questions there. One is, um, one is how do you set a goal? Mm -hmm. And there's difference between tactical goals and life goals. And then the other is, are goals even useful? So first of all, What a goal is, it's something that directs your behavior. That's all it is. If you have a goal, then when you're faced with a choice between doing two different things, you'll do the thing that takes you closer to your goal. That's what a goal does. A goal just helps you make decisions. If you don't have a and maybe it motivates you a little bit. But, but that's the only function of a goal. There's nothing else magical about them. They just serve as a thing that aids your thinking. Mm -hmm. So um, When it comes to how do you set a goal, for example, for what to do this week, if you have a full-time job and you have a part-time, you know, you, you have this thing you're doing on the outside, um, is that is that I think you need to partition up your time and decide for yourself how much time you're going to spend on each job in any given week. So I'm going to spend 40 hours a week, or I'm going to spend 40 hours this week on my day job and then 10 hours on my after day job office and then just ask yourself what needs to be done that, that will move the business forward. And that be, that can be done in 10 hours. So given that I have 10 hours to commit, what can I do in that 10 hours that will move, that will move the business the maximum amount forward? And that becomes my goal for the outside business. And then I have whatever work goals I'm given at work. And if you have a work goal, that's going to require 70 hours worth of work, you're not going to get anything done on your out on your secondary job that week. So that's, I think that's almost a fairly, um, straightforward goal setting process. Here's how much time I have for each job. What goal, what goal can I get done in that time that will move me forward the most? When it comes to life goals, and this is the thing I think uh, I certainly uh, never thought about this. So the way I'm about to describe, I, I, this kind of came to me in a flash like seven or eight years ago, mm -hmm. um, and I'm still kind of boggled by it. Um, there's the journey and the destination. And we are taught to set goals by identifying, here's the destination I want to reach, and then figuring out what journey will get us there. And the problem with that is that a lot of journeys suck. A lot of journeys, I, I met this guy who was the CEO of not just a Fortune 500 company, he was a CEO of a Fortune 5 company. Um, so very, very, like this man had been 
you know, one of only five people in the world to run an, an, an institution of that size. And he hated his life. Oh my God. He's like, he's like, I, he's like, I, I wanted to make a big change in the world. So I joined this company, you know, 35 years ago, worked my way up. I hate the industry. I hate the company. I hate the people. I'm not interested in it. I think the people are horrible and immoral and unethical and disgusting people. And, you know, I worked my way up figuring that once I was CEO, I could make a difference. And it turns out now that I'm the CEO, I am beholden to the board of directors and I am beholden to the financial markets. And if I do anything that makes any significant change in this company, I'll be fired in an instant and replaced with someone else. So I'm just clocking in time to get my you know, multi-million dollar payoff. And then I'm going to, going to go and retire, you know, to my beautiful castle in Arkansas. Um, and it was fascinating because he had basically committed to a journey that he didn't like, yeah. and he got to the goal. He made the goal. And it turns out he didn't like the goal either. Oh my <laughs> God. This is so sad. Right. You know, and I was listening, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, great life. A very comfortable life, mind you. I mean, you know, he financially, he was well off. But um, so, so after having that conversation with him, I realized that when it comes to life goals, you can either set a life goal and then figure out what journey will take you there. Or you can think about what journey you want to have. And based on the journey you want to have, you want to ask which goals, remember goals are just goal setting or goals are just decision devices. You can ask which goals could I set that will result in me having the kind of journey that I want to have. So for example, let's say you want to do a lot of, let's say your journey. So there's a physical element to it. You want to do a lot of stuff outdoors. So you want to have an outdoors journey. Um, the kinds of people you want to interact with is you want to interact with curious, um, with curious people who are always challenging you about things um, and like challenging you to, to think outside your box. And I'll just go with those two things right now. Um, mm -hmm. so, so, so the journey is outdoors with curious people. Well, you could become a tour guide for the island of, was it Galapagos, where, where Darwin, you know, that has all of these species that don't exist anywhere else in the world, um, for people, you know, for people who, who have interests in zoology, or something. And, you know, you could run special tours and try to and attract people who know a lot about arcane things and are going to engage with you in question, questions about it, so on and so forth. Um, mm -hmm. You could, um, uh, so we have, we have, again, we have outdoors and we have challenging people. You could become a travel agent and arrange adventure travel for nerds. <laughs> you know, where it's like, this is the, this is going to be the astrophysics adventure travel. And, you know, we're going to go whitewater rafting in the daytime. And at nighttime, we're going to take out our telescopes and, and identify constellations or something. Mm -hmm. um, now those, those are both, those are both kind of teaching things. Um, you could, um, yeah, boy, my brain is really stuck in the teaching track here because <laughs> I said the, the thing about curiosity. I, but, you know, I, I hopefully you get the idea. But the, yes. the basic idea is from the same journey might might be able to be had in many different ways. Mm -hmm. And so if instead of spending your time choosing one goal quickly and then spending lots of time brainstorming different journeys, if instead you choose one journey and then spend lots of time brainstorming different goals and what are different way, different things that will give me that journey. It's almost like you're flipping the role of a, of a journey and a goal. Um, I think you might come up with much more interesting goals. 
and much more non-obvious goals and things that, you know, when you talk to people at a cocktail party and they say, what's your goal in life? And you say, if people do ask that at cocktail parties, I do, which I don't get invited <laughs> back much. But if, if someone asks you that, you can say, oh, you know, I'm aspiring to put together a, a, a tour company for the island of Galapagos. And I guarantee you, people will remember you because it's a lot more interesting than, well, I'm looking at uh, getting my next actuarial accounting certification. And my goal is to be able to draw up actuarial tables 10% faster than the average, which, well, you know, I, I mean, God bless actuaries. Without them, we wouldn't have insurance companies, but <laughs> it's, 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 you know, it's not necessarily going to produce the same journey as doing a tour company to the island of Galapagos. Yeah. And I think it's one of the myths that a goal it's in itself about a goal. It's about a journey. So what are what are the other myths and maybe truths about productivity and setting goals and that kind of stuff? Oh boy. Uh well so one of them is there's one of them is that hard work is a myth. <laughs> uh, that's a big one. Um you know another one I will say that there is a degree to which planning is a myth. Mm -hmm. Planning works really well for small projects that are well understood that you know how to do. But people try to plan all kinds of big projects in life, um, excuse me, with just no, with, with absolutely no basis for their plans. You know, like so you'll, someone, I used to do career counseling a couple times a month. Uh, and I would have someone come in and say, oh, you know, I, I, I plan to, I, I want to be, you know, the CEO of a, Fortune, of a Fortune 5 company. And I'd say, really, how are you planning on getting there? And they would say, oh, well, you know, first I'm going to go get, go work for a, a management consulting firm so that I learn everything there is to know about management. And then, then I'm going to go and become an investment banker so that I have all the financial connections. And <laughs> then I'm going to go get a job in the stock room and work my way up in this company. And I would be listening to this plan and I would be going, this is bizarre. Like, There's no reason to believe this would work. And, you know, I'd say, have you ever seen anyone else who's done that? Have you ever heard of anyone who's done that? Have you ever talked to anyone who's actually been at the head of a Fortune 5 company and asked them how they did it? You know, maybe you should start with the stockroom job. Or maybe you should get an MBA and start with a middle-level management job. Or maybe you should marry the CEO's spouse and, <laughs> and have it given to you. You know, people... People seem to forget that the reason that Thomas Watson Jr. was the head of IBM for so many years was because Thomas Watson Sr. was his father. Right. And, you know, and, and we pretend that things like that don't exist. But, you know, I, I'm looking in America. We currently have a uh, we currently have a, a government that is being headed up by the president and his family. Right. I mean, you know, so, so to pretend that nepotism isn't real is is just blinding yourself to the way the world actually works, or at least mm -hmm. actually works in some cases with some people. Uh, so, so when it comes to planning, like goals, plans plans serve a useful function. Creating a plan, real if you really do a good do a good job and do research, creating a plan is a way to learn a lot about the thing that you're trying to do. And in the course of learning about it, you may learn that you're using the wrong approach. You may learn that you don't want to do the thing after all. At one point, I thought I wanted to be a professional actor, and then I talked to some professional actors and learned what their lives were like and decided I do not want to be a professional actor. Um, however, uh, so, so planning, planning can be a useful exercise. But once you're on the ground and doing stuff, you know, use the feedback from the real world to modify or even abandon your plan. Because one of the things is that plans become blinders as well as becoming enablers. 
And it, you know, and this is a paradox, and I do not know how to resolve this paradox. Sometimes, let's say that your plan says, oh, go down Main Street to reach the downtown area. And you're driving down Main Street, and then there's this sign that says, new shortcut to downtown, you know, turn left here. Well, should you, should you take that? Should you take that shortcut and go downtown? Maybe it doesn't go downtown. Maybe it'll be a complete disaster. But your plan says go forward. So you know what? You're just going to go, I'm just going to stick to the plan because I made the plan. I'm going to stick to the plan and you go forward. And later it turns out that that shortcut would have gotten you there 10 times faster and you would have arrived and magically turned into a beautiful carriage drawn by horses and you would have glass slippers and like your life would become a fairy tale. Um, And this is not... You know, this is not hypothetical. If you take a look at most of the people who are in position, who who have lives that you look at from the outside and go, oh, that's amazing, and you talk to them, and this is how I came to this conclusion, by the way, as I went out and started talking to these people, mm-hmm. um, what you will find is they virtually always at some point deviated from plan. At some point, something happened that they weren't expecting, and they just decided to risk deviating from plan and doing this something else, and it turns out that it worked. And of course, in retrospect, they're going to tell the story that, oh, I was a strategic genius. But most of the time, people have have some small number of turning points, which were major turning points where they just said, you know what, I'm going to abandon my plan and go for it. Now, the problem with this is it doesn't mean you should always abandon your plan and go for it. Because what we're not hearing from is all the people who abandoned their plan and then failed. Because no one's asking them to come be speakers at conferences. No one, They're not writing books you know, et cetera. So there's this thing called survivorship bias, which is very, very strong in the self-help world and in the world of figuring out how to do stuff as people say, oh, you know, like, have you ever seen these things? Here's the 10 habits of billionaires. I'm like, yeah, but how about the 900 million people who also have those habits who didn't become billionaires? Like, you know, like, like they never talk about that side of the equation. And in fact, maybe the habits the billionaires have are actually dysfunctional habits, but it turns out that if you're a billionaire, you can have that habit and it won't be a problem because you've got a billion dollars to cover for it. So, you know, so, so that's backwards thinking. It's just, most people don't realize it's backwards thinking. So that's the same thing about, about sticking to a plan versus not sticking to a plan. So the myth is that planning is a be all and end all because for large goals of things you've never done before, you may or may not, you know, you may or may not even be able to come up with a plan that makes sense. And even talking to people who've done it before doesn't mean that their plan will work for you. You could not do what Bill Gates did and end up being Bill Gates today. The world has changed. He did what he did at a very specific time in a very specific context, and it worked. Um, Doesn't mean that it would work for you. You know, and it also doesn't mean even if you were back at that time in that context, it may not work for you because he's a different person and he makes different decisions than you do and he thinks about things differently. So so it's hard to do plans that you can have high degrees of confidence in, number one. And then number two, let's say you do do a plan, you have a high degree of confidence, you're fairly sure the plan will work. Well, you know, when it turns out that your roommate is starting a little online bookstore and he's decided to call it Amazon, and would you like to leave your high-paying, safe corporate job that pays you six figures to join this little startup that, you know, mayor that where you're you're putting books, you're wrapping books up in your garage? You know, it it the rational decision based upon the information you have at that point is no, I'm sticking with my corporate job. And of course, in retrospect, the decision that probably would have led to a certain different level of outcome um, is, you know, would be, would be take the risk. And the problem is you don't know in advance. And I think one of the downfalls of living in modern industrialized society 
with all the information we have is we have we we love the myth that we can predict the future. And the mm-hmm. reality is we're really bad at it. <laughs> and yeah. and in cases where we are good at it, um, we often doubt it. Um, like, you know, I'm just thinking about like global warming, the, the global warming quote unquote debate at this point, you know, I'm sitting here going like, wow, you're willing to spend your life savings, go a hundred thousand dollars into debt under the plan and the prediction that getting a college degree is going to result in you having a secure financial life. And by the way, a cursory, if you can, you can do the numbers on the back of a piece of paper, looking at what student loans cost, et cetera, et cetera at least in America, that is no longer clear at all. It is not clearly a, a, a smart decision to get a college degree unless you can get it from a small number of colleges or interested in a particular set of fields. But mm-hmm. by and large, a college degree is not a great investment measured in financial terms. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm, that's a broad, broad statement, but yeah. uh, but that's taken as gospel in many places that, of course, that will lead to that. Um, and then you have things like a 97% consensus around in the world science the, of the world science scientists that you know we're we're carboning ourselves into oblivion 50 years from now and people are just kind of like oh well I guess it's a problem you know maybe but you know may, may, maybe they're lying you know and I'm like wait so you believe the disprovable thing about student loans and you don't believe the thing that we have like reams of data going back decades to support you know it's just mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting so. When you make a plan, you have to believe the plan. Hopefully, it'll be the right plan. And then when, when that weird little offshoot happens in your life, you need to decide, is this worth deviating from plan? And you never know. Um, I actually happen to know someone who did do the thing of he left high-paying corporate job to go work at the little bookstore whose name begins with A back when it was founded. And mm-hmm. my friend did very, very, very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but so, there were people yeah. who thought his decision was insane. Yeah, well, I don't think they think it now. But no. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask you about apps and tools and smartphones. You know, I've I've read somewhere in the article about Steve Jobs that if he saw how people use his uh, creation today, I mean, iPhone, he would not be glad because he wanted people to use it differently. What do you think about it? Um. Yeah, so, well, so first of all, I think that the peak of productivity tools was the Palm Pilot back in the late 1990s, early 2000s, because it gave you the actual pieces of product. It gave you things that genuinely made you more productive, which was a calendar, a contact list, uh, a to-do list, and a, a memo pad, and it had no distractions on it. And importantly, it didn't really multitask, so it didn't tempt you to want to multitask. Um what what modern smartphones are, they're, they're not productivity tools, not even remotely. Um, in fact, for most people, they are the number one obstacle to productivity. They interrupt you, which is bad. Um, focus is focus. If you want to become highly productive at something, at least, you know, if it's not like an interactive task, like being a retail clerk, but if you want to be, in fact, in fact, even a highly interactive task, having interruptions is not, throws you off your game, right? Um, yeah. These things are interruption devices. Um they, I don't actually want to get too deeply into the cognitive science of it because this is something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, but um, they they make it harder to context switch, interestingly enough. Your brain works best when you have completely separate contexts and environments for different kinds of tasks. So if you have a writing table where all you do is write, you go, you sit down at your writing table and boom, your brain will go right into writing mode. If 
you have a place where you exercise in your house. Like, oh, I put my yoga mat down there and I do yoga every day. Personally, I don't do yoga. But if I did do yoga, I would have a place where I would put my, my yoga mat down. And I put my yoga mat down in that place. And that's a signal to my brain that says, boom, yoga mode. Go into Wait, yoga mode. So isn't that like connected with multitasking? That multitasking, doing a couple things at the same time is not good for your brain. Yes, multitasking causes the same problem as smartphones, which basically is you have one set, one context, which is this one physical device that your brain associates with multiple things. So as a result, you pick up the device and, and at, at a brain level, <laughs> at a brain level, it triggers multiple associations. If you put your yoga mat down, what, you're, what, you, what it's going to trigger in your brain is it's time for yoga. When you pick up your smartphone, at least for me, what it triggers in my brain is, oh, it's time for, and this is just my notification screen, right? Mm -hmm. It's time for some combination of calendar, phone, email, Plague, which is, I guess, a game that I own and have never played, <laughs> uh, uh, Plague Incorporated, uh, Slack, Skype, and oh, there's an update. So I'm it's like, like, okay, so... So even if I was picking up my phone with a specific intent, like, oh, I want to, I want to read the message that Chris sent me and respond to it, by the time I've looked at the, at the lock screen, my brain has now had five different topics activated, and I may not even remember that Chris is the reason I picked up the phone. Right. And so, this, so this, is a pro, this is an inherent problem with the way they've, they've designed the device mm -hmm. uh, in the first place. In the second place... People go, now go to their smartphone when they have any free time at all. Well, that, that's under the assumption that free time is meaningless and is useless. Well, guess what? We've researched that. And it turns out that that free time when you're standing in line and you're bored is when your brain does a lot of creative thinking. And it does a lot of thinking about big picture stuff and so on and so forth. So what you're trading is a level of creativity and a level of contemplation and a level of depth of thought in exchange for constant stimulation. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't help that the people who design these are actually literally designing them to be constant stimulation instead of designing them. I mean, it, productivity is nowhere on the list of, of features of features that, that anyone is developing into these devices. I mean, no one cares mm -hmm. about that. Google cares about tracking you with Android. And Apple, I don't know what they care about, but you know the iPhone 10. They were like, "Oh, the iPhone 10, most amazing thing ever." Every single new feature of the iPhone 10 was related to taking better selfies. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at that, and I'm going, "Okay, so you're basically making a camera." And right. I don't want a camera. I want a productivity device. <laughs> Thank mm -hmm. you. And and I want to be productive at something meaningful. And let me be honest, you know, when I was growing up. And I think we're, we appear to be of different generations. Mm -hmm. When I was growing up, anyone who spent all their time taking pictures of themselves, that would have been considered something of a mental disorder. Yeah, it was the and, same. I'm a millennial and it was the same in, yeah. in late 90s, basically. So I understand yeah. that. And I'm like, I'm like, okay. And so now we have a $1,000 device whose goal is so you can take more pictures of yourself and yeah. post them for people to see. I'm like, that just seems creepy to me. Mm -hmm. And it certainly is not going to help me send email any faster. Uh, so, so one of the things with smartphones and apps is people assume that if something is made in app, somehow makes that task easier or better. Well, being a productivity geek, I measure these things. And um, I, so I will do things like I will try using just an online, just an app for a period of time. Then I'll try using a different app. Then I'll try using pencil and paper. And I have found, for example, for me at least, um, I do way better with a to-do list that's written down versus one that's online. 
it's it, you know is the online one easier in some sense yes but that's the problem the goal of life is not to make everything maximally easy, right? At the end of your life, you're going to die. If you want to make life maximally easy, throw yourself off of a building now and boom, that is the most efficient way to live your life possible. Mm -hmm. um, don't do that, by the way. Um, <laughs> but but it turns out that having that, that writing my to-do list down, I remember things better because you remember them better if you write them down using handwriting instead of typing them. Mm -hmm. um, but also, when I have to copy my to-do list over onto a new page, it forces me to stop and think about, are these things really important? So it keeps me more focused on the things that are important as opposed to just this huge long list of stuff that I'm never going to look at anything except the top five things because that's all that fits on my screen anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so A, smartphones are distraction devices. B, the, uh, the assumption that an app is superior to a pencil and paper system, that doesn't hold for everything. For some things, that's true. For other things, it isn't. You have to test it to find out for you and your brain and your style and your life which one works better. Um, and then the um, – boy, I had a third thing. So there's the, there's the distraction value. Oh, right. And it's that, that literally – there are many things on smartphones that are simply not efficient. So typing on a smartphone, I've never seen, yes, I've seen people who can type fast. Guess what? So can I. <laughs> and um, I cannot type, I can touch type 70 to 100 words a minute on a computer. And on a smartphone, you know, I'm lucky if I could get up to 30 words a minute on that. Yeah. And um, so in terms of efficiency, if I'm going to be reading and responding to email on my smartphone, I'm going to be going at at 30% the speed. And I'm not even talking about the thinking part. I mean, literally, just to be able to type the sentence, yes, I'd love to meet with you next week, is going to take me way longer on my phone than on a keyboard. And by the way, both of those will take longer than picking up the phone and saying, yes, I'll meet with you next week. And, you know, I hear people say things like, oh, but if I make a phone call, you know, it'll go on for hours. I'm like, no. No, it won't. You pick up the call and you call the person and say, you know, I just wanted to tell you I'll meet with you next week. Is that okay? Great. Thanks. Bye. Done. Right. You know, if, if the phone, if a phone call for you is less efficient than typing, that's a statement about you, not a statement about the medium. Because in terms of the actual physical medium, you cannot type anywhere near as fast as you can talk and you cannot type on a smartphone anywhere near as fast as you can type on a keyboard. If, mm -hmm. if the issue is, you don't know how to not be chatty. Well, I can, we, I can teach you. Many people can teach you that. You know, you just need to learn how to call someone up and have a very quick conversation about something. And besides, no one answers their, their phone anyway, so just leave them a voicemail. Uh, so, so that's my reaction to, to smartphones and apps is I actually think that on the whole, smartphones make you less productive. Um, I am as addicted to mine as everyone else is to theirs. Mm -hmm. I have considered getting a flip phone before. I haven't ever quite had the courage to pull the plug because just like everyone else, I'm addicted because they are made to be addictive. Yes. Um, however, that said, I also, even though I have like 200 apps on my on my phone, I don't actually use it for very many of them. I mean, most of what I do, I choose whatever system works best for me. So um, for for things that work best on computer, like my calendar, I find works best on computer. I use my desktop for that just mm -hmm. consistently. Um, for my to-do list, you know, as I'm, as I, wow. those of you listening, you can't see, but my to-do list is on paper. I have tried hundreds of to-do apps over the last 15, 20 years. I have tried different systems. And at the end of the day, this is the one that actually works best for me. And, you know, um, uh, and, and it's not perfect in the sense that do I get everything on it done? Good heavens, no. I mean, there's stuff that's been on here for ages. Um, and there's stuff that I finally dropped. But it forces me to look at the pages 
and to decide what to drop on a regular basis. And that's that actually turns out to be a good thing. It forces me to be deliberate about my life so that I can be effective. So when I look at this page and I say, oh, here's a to-do item, but now that I understand more about my business, I realize this to-do item isn't actually going to move the business forward. It might be efficient, but it's not going to be effective. So I'm not going to do this to-do item. And it gets dropped off the list. Um, you know, And I could do all of that with an electronic to-do list. But for me personally, when I have an electronic to-do list, I don't do all of that. When I have an electronic list, things just accumulate until I have, you know, 10,000 things in it. And I never look at any of them except the top five anyway. So, you know, uh, so for me, the paper list just works way better. I think productivity apps, tools are very personal uh, things. We all use it differently. So it all depends on who we are and how we work. So what else helps you stay on top of your work? Do you have any tips, tools, methodologies, anything like that? goodness well yeah i have so let me give you let me give you one of my favorite uh, tips so by the way i have a podcast which is the get it done guy which is itunes.com slash get it done guy and i have 540 tips on tips up there but this is one that i use myself on a regular basis i have an egg timer it's an external timer it is not my phone because i don't want it to remind me of anything except the time i set it for 10 minutes i make a list of five, actually i make a list of five things i want to work on that usually is something that I've been procrastinating. I set it for five minutes, start the timer, start working on task one. When the timer goes up, immediately switch to task, to task two. Do not reach a breaking point. If you reach a breaking point, your brain will feel like it's, it's had closure. You don't want closure. Immediately skip to task two. Do this until you've done all five tasks. So that'll be 25 minutes. Set it, turn it on again, take a five minute break. So that's been half an hour. Now do it a second time. With five again, I, I do it usually twice with five minutes. So now I've done a total of an hour and I've had five minutes of break and I've done five minutes of work on each of five tasks. Then shift it to 10 minutes and do 10 minutes on each task, which will take you another hour and then take a 10 minute break. And I usually just stick with 10 minutes at that point. I guarantee you, you will make so much progress on all five tasks, even though you're only doing five minutes at a time. You'll, you'll mm-hmm. really get going. Um, and, you know, if there's something you really need to get done because you're working on a deadline and you want to just keep going after the five-minute burst, you can do that. But this is a way – this is not multitasking because you're not working on them simultaneously. Um, but it's very rapid context switching through a very, very limited number of things that you decide in advance. And there's a number of reasons why I think it works as well as it does. But among them, it's um, – you're, it's that you stop distracting yourself by thinking, oh, I'm working on my report when I really need to be reading my email. And then when you're reading your email, you're thinking, well, I'm here reading email, but I really have this report that needs to be done. Your brain knows it's only five minutes till I get to read my email. So I'm just going to hyper-focus on the report. And then five minutes later, it's like, okay, I know I'm going to get back to the report in 10 minutes. So now I'm going to hyper-focus on the email. And so you do like progressive hyper-focus. It's really kind of cool. Nice. Awesome. Okay. Uh, Steve, because you have to go. Uh, I wish you all yeah. the best and thank you so much for joining me here for this podcast. It was an amazing conversation. Absolutely. I wish we can do it uh, next time. Uh, yes. Well, you know, feel free to reach out. I, I love doing these because uh, I'm a teacher at heart. Um, and awesome. again, people can reach me at uh, my podcast is iTunes.com slash Get It Done Guy. And you can find my, uh, you, you can find my Get It Done groups at getitdonegroups.com. Really hard to find. <laughs> um, and then you can find me at steverrobbins.com. So those, those are all of my all of my electronic addresses. Awesome. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much for having me and uh, to hope to talk to you again soon.
Don't forget to subscribe to get more tips on productivity and time management and many other things. Listen to our previous episodes, especially the one with David Allen and Laura Vanderkamp. Stay productive and stay tuned until next time. This podcast was brought to you by Tenkan. You can listen to it on iTunes and SoundCloud. Subscribe to get more content and always stay on top of your work.